Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Zechariah was in the temple and the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that that his wife would have a son. That son would be the precursor to the Messiah. In the sixth month, the same angel Gabriel visited Mary. That was on March 25th. And nine months later, Jesus was born on December 25th. So we're kind of replaying the whole thing this year and next year. And call me crazy, but I think that's kind of neat, especially when we're going into one of the Gospels. Luke, uh, let's pick it up there. We're we're going to do part four of Matthew's Gospel, and we ran out of time a little bit there at the end. So let's pick up right there and 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 continue on. Okay. Uh... One of the interesting things about Yom Kippur is, you know, when we look at type and and heavenly reality, Yom Kippur uh, could only be understood through the mystical body of Christ being a truth, not just a metaphor. And if Paul tells us that we are the body of Christ, and he says Christ is the head of the body, but Christ is also the true Melchizedek, who... uh, 
is uh, our true high priest, then when Christ spiritually enters the Holy of Holies of, uh, of Yom Kippur, he takes his body with him. And this is actually the imagery in, of the fulfillment of, of the Mass. And Paul gives us this imagery when he says, uh, you have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem, to the Church of the Firstborn, to thousands of angels, to uh, the spirits of the just made perfect, to Jesus Christ, mediator of the new covenant, and to a sprinkling of blood that speaks better than that of Abel. We're sprinkled with this blood at every mass to remove venial sins as we are in the presence spiritually in the Holy of Holies and Holies because during the mass, the veil from heaven to earth that separates the true nature of the Holy of Holies and the Holies is is ripped in two and we celebrate with the hosts of heaven the true Passover for the world. And this, yeah. When you when you look at this imagery and things, it's it's impossible to grasp unless you believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and believe that the mystical body of Christ is not a metaphor but a heavenly reality. But if you right. believe these things, then you have the key to truly opening it up Scripture. You can't be Protestant with this understanding in your head, and, and you can't continue to be Protestant with these understandings in your head and faith to believe them as you continue to read scripture. Right. And if you think that God wasn't trying to make that point, let me just tell you something that just puts the exclamation point on it. Because while Zechariah was in the temple being visited by the angel Gabriel, the planet Jupiter was rising in the western sky. It began rising in the western sky, and the Magi would have recognized that. And it rose for nine months until it conjoined with the planet Venus in what would have been up to then and even to now the most spectacular astronomical event ever seen. This has been verified by over 600, um, what do they call them, uh, the planetariums. Over 600 planetariums worldwide have, have verified this, that it conjoined with the planet Venus in June of 2 BC, which would have coincided with the birth of John the Baptist, and then that star continued its eastward march, and it would have been visible directly at 12 o'clock high over the town of Bethlehem, where it stopped for six days, beginning on December 25th, 2 BC. So that's kind of the exclamation point on on the on the whole thing, and. And, and this is to Luke's point that God is pointing towards Yom Kippur as very significant and very central to what he was doing because of, just as Luke put, put, uh, pointed out, what Yom Kippur points forward to. God isn't doing anything by accident here, is he, Luke? No. And uh, what you were just describing uh uh, made me think of of, of something else. Uh, have you ever heard of the name Emanuel Velikovsky? No, I have not. He was a friend of Einstein's. He wrote a book, Worlds in Collision. And he showed through just tons and tons of old historical references, uh, Hindu, even in the uh, the Hindu Vedas and the, the uh, Maya Popol Vuh, 
uh, the Egyptian uh, uh, books showing uh, the uh, the planet Venus as a comet. Uh, uh, and uh, actually, it wasn't it, this wasn't in a book. It's actually on one of the walls in one of the temples. And he talked about this time where the planet Venus was actually uh, a, a comet. And he did this by also showing the marriages in uh, pagan mythology between the different gods actually being marriages of the the planets. And uh, he also referred to, I think it was Mars and Venus. And uh, he talked about this, uh, the ancients talking about this marriage between Mars and Venus. And then you have uh, an ancient uh, historian, uh, I think it's around 200 BC, uh, uh, Aristophanes, and he says that uh, the the planet Venus actually ran into Mars, and then you have this fascinating Mariner's Trench on Mars that looks like, you know, somebody just took a big rock and scraped across the planet where it's actually deeper in the center than it is on the sides because the planet's, you know, uh, a ball. And then he talks about this uh, planet Venus coming through at the exact same times as the 10 plagues brushing our outer atmosphere. And again, during the time of Joshua, when they were told to flee to the mountains. So then again, you just described what was going on in 2 BC, which would be the last time this planet would be, you know, uh, that close and uh, that close to another planet uh, uh, before Venus created its its normal rotation, <laughs> so wow. it's uh, it, it, it's it's fascinating stuff. It doesn't have too much to do with our theology, but uh, you know, it's it's it, there's a bigger picture you can look at. You yeah. know, and of course you can't say this is factual information, but it just becomes fascinating. Was you know did God announce the coming of uh, of of the Messiah through the same planet that you know, participated in saving the Israelites in Egypt. Yeah. Again, no coincidences. So we're going to pick <laughs> it up. We're going to pick it up where we left off. We're going to pick it up at Matthew eight twenty three. Let's take it from there, Luke. Okay. Yeah. So we'll start by reading Matthew eight twenty three. And so it reads, And when he entered into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, a great tempest arose in the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And they came to him and awakened him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And Jesus saith to them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then rising up, he commanded the winds and the sea, and there came a great calm, but the men wondered, saying, What manner of man is this, for the winds and the sea obey him? So here the Son of Man is in the bark of Peter and, and calms the seas. At this time, the apostles still did not have the grace to understand who was in their presence. And they may have had a, a, a bit of an intellectual understanding. But the truth did not sink in until Pentecost, 
So Matthew also could be leading us to Psalms 107 here. And we'll read the psalm. Let the mercies of the Lord give glory to him and his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifice of praise and declare his works with joy. They were troubled and reeled like a drunken man, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. And they cried to the Lord in their affliction, and he brought them out of their distress. And he turned the storm into a breeze, and its waves were still. So Matthew is showing us through the image of Peter's boat how God protects his, his church in storms. When the church is in a storm, God, you know, God provides grace. Yeah, and it's once again, it's it's just another shocking image because I love Matthew's use of language here because he's he's personifying the wind here. I mean, he says the wind's obeying him. How can the wind, which is not a being, obey him? And look, you see, you see, Matthew keeps pulling back the veil, keeps pulling back the veil, and shows that our trials, on our misfortunes, our illnesses, and even the weather are directly tied to the battle between God and the devils. And it gives us example after example of supernatural things tied to visible things. And there's more of them coming in, in what you're about to read here, but it just, this seems to be a point that Matthew was trying to hammer home, doesn't it? Yeah, and all of this, if, if we remember, is in the context of Matthew uh you know, uh, making that case for Jesus being the Son of Man, and we see the Son of Man in the in the image of Daniel, where it's a physical manifestation of God in the heavens. So everything is in the context of the Son of Man establishing uh, the reestablished kingdom of David, his, the, the kingdom of God on earth, and being our Messiah. Uh, I, I mean, he's, he's definitely. I agree with you. He's definitely showing that facet of it, but he's also showing the larger picture that not only is he is he the Son of God, but everything that's visible. What 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 Matthew is showing is that the battle of life is so much bigger than what we see before our eyes, and that Jesus is at the very center of that of this of definitely. this great cosmic this great cosmic play that's going on that we see just the tip of the iceberg up. Definitely. Definitely. That's a good imagery for that too. So we'll move on to Matthew eight twenty eight, And when he was come to the other side of the water into the country of garrisons, there met him too with the devil coming out of sepulchers exceeding fierce so that none could pass by that way and behold they cried out saying what have we to do with thee jesus son of god art thou come hither to torment us before the time and there was there was not far from them a herd of many swine feeding and the devils besought him saying if thou cast us out hence send us into the herd of swine and he said to them go but they going out went into the swine, and behold, the whole herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea, and they perished in the waters, and they that kept them fled. And coming into the city told everything, and concerning them 
that had been possessed by the devils. And behold, the whole city went out to, to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart from their coast. If, if you look at the world before the Eucharist began to spread throughout the world and, and after, it, it appears to me that there is there's a lot less possessions after. Uh, on a different plane of reality, the Eucharist could be blinding and subduing the demonic as you know, millions of rays of light leave the church churches, because we leave with Christ, the glorified body, you know, physically in us, you know, and and this began to spread throughout the entire world, you know, Malachi 1:11, you know, kind of describes this. My name is great among the Gentiles, from the rising of the sun to the setting, a perfect oblation will be offered by name. And uh, another note, the Gentiles thought. It was funny how Jews responded when it came to pigs and, and, and teased the Jews about it. Uh, if you read in Second Maccabees 6.18, Eleazar, one of the chief of the scribes, a man advanced in years and of a calmly countenance, was pressed to open his mouth to eat swine's flesh. So yet Jesus, after Matthew, calls him the son of man uh, and gives the imagery on how we will support the bark of Peter shows how he had power o over demons. So as you mentioned, it shows how they have power over us when we, when we turn away from him. I mean, the, the point that you made about before the manifestation of the Eucharist, you had this widespread and very open uh, presence of, of the demonic and as you know we're at a point now where I saw a recent poll that showed that two thirds of Catholics don't believe in the real presence in the Eucharist and how can you call it a coincidence that we have this dramatic rise worldwide in the in the demonic the two are directly linked just as you as you exactly. pointed out exactly and uh, you know uh it's it's almost like the devil is gaining more power as you know people lose faith. Yeah, but but the Eucharist is still present all around the world, so that'll be present till the end of time. And that's why we can't help but be, be optimistic about uh, the church's recent efforts to spark a, a, a Eucharistic revival. Definitely, definitely. So uh, a quick review for those who are just coming into this, uh, uh, these couple chapters. So from here we understand Matthew's goal to lay out a case for Jesus being the Messiah, the King, the Son of Man, therefore God who is establishing the sacramental kingdom, establishing uh, in the fulfillment of what was the physical kingdom of David. And Jesus began his ministry in an area that was half Gentiles and half Jews teaching the kingdom of heaven for both uh, Gentiles and, uh, and Jews. But we don't see so, that in Matthew's, we don't see that in Matthew's gospel so much. We see that Ma Matthew was definitely targeting an educated offense, uh, audience, rather. He was definitely targeting an audience of Jews who were well-versed in the Old Testament to convince them. He wasn't so much targeting the Gentiles at, at, at all. Do you agree with that? Well, I think because 
of where he was at and some of the groups he was involved in. It's uh, he's slowly bringing bring, bringing them in, but you know, uh, as the prophet goes, he first went to the Jews, his own his own people, and they rejected him. So we see this rejection of the uh, happening, and then it was Peter who, by divine providence, was the first one who. Uh, uh, baptized the the first Gentiles into the church, so there was a time where the church actually followed Christ in this process of being rejected by the Jews, and then the church as a whole uh, through Peter began to bring the Gentiles into into the church, fulfilling the the prophecies. Mm-hmm. So we're now at Matthew chapter 9, and we'll look at Matthew 9, uh, 1 through 8. And entering into a boat, he passed over the water and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him one sick of the palsy, lying in a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the man sick of the palsy, Be of good heart, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And behold, some of the scribes said within themselves, He blasphemeth. And Jesus, seeing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil is in your heart? Whether it whether it is easier to say, Thy sins are forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then said he to the man, sick of palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. And he arose and went into his house, and the multitude, seeing it, feared and glorified God that gave such power to men. Now, this this must have, must have really enraged the Pharisees, who had a clear understanding that only God can forgive sins. Uh, they had no understanding how God can forgive sins through his body, the mystical body, of course. But Jesus showed them a miracle, which only God can do, unless it is trickery. Then on top of that, he really put the shock to them. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, In our last presentation, we showed that Son of Man in the book of Daniel is the physical manifestation of God in the heavens. Needed to emphasize that there, and right. and uh, we'll we'll look at this for for those who haven't read this, and so we'll go to Daniel seven. I beheld therefore in the vision of the night, and lo, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and he came even to the ancient of days, and they presented him, and they presented him before him, and he gave him power and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, tribes, and tongues shall serve him. His power is an everlasting power that shall not be taken away, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So, and we'll see later in Matthew twenty six sixty four, Jesus again refers to himself as the Son of Man, <laughs> further freaking out the Pharisees and leaders. But you can clearly see Matthew here is showing us that. This same Jesus who is forgiving sins is the one who has the, the, this, this, this you know, power, incredible power, everlasting power. 
that uh, shall not be taken away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. He's showing him establishing this kingdom. Uh, And we go on. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest said to him, I adjure thee by the living God, and thou shalt uh, tell us, thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith to him, thou hast said it. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. So then the high priest rent his garment, saying, he has blasphemed. If we read uh, Leviticus 24, 16, uh, we get a little understanding of, of, of what this means when uh, Pharisees said he has blasphemed. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, dying, let him die. All the multitude shall stone him, whether he be a native or a stranger. He that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, dying, let him die. So Jesus, uh, of course, had full knowledge that he was setting up his own fate. He, of course, knew what his words would later put in place. So, of course, as as we presented in our last show, in John 6, when the crowds could not take Jesus' words that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have life, his life, within us, he said, what if you see the Son of Man rise to where he was before? Then would you believe? Of course, that's exactly what we saw in Acts 1. So Jesus proved the real presence by showing how he was the Son of Man as he rose to where he was before as the true image of of God in the book of Daniel. And, you know, this stuff is just, just spiritual poetry for the soul. It just, it, that seamless fabric that just all comes together. If you look at the bigger image and then try not to be isolated just by, you know, a few words at a time or, or you're subjected to that cookie cutter, you know, anti-Catholic tradition, you know, picking out certain phrases and, and, you know, instead of looking at the bigger picture. And, and this is where I have – I just have to laugh when I when I hear this sola scriptura, I can pick up the Bible and understand it for myself nonsense because outside of the church, it, it almost looks like a massive contradictions that, that Jesus was so doxical and, and seemingly controversial. I'll give you one example. In, in this instance where they lowered the man down to the roof, Jesus very clearly ties the man's uh, condition, his physical condition, to his sins. He he said, arise, uh, your sins are forgiven, you pick up your mat and walk. And yet, there was another instance where they confronted him about a blind man, and they said, was it this man's sins or was it his parents' sins that caused him to be blind? And Jesus very clearly says, no, it was not his sins nor his parents' sins, but so that the glory of God would be manifested through him. So in one case, we see a man whose who's, uh, deformities, whose who's disabilities are directly tied to his sins. And then we see another man who has a disability, and sin has absolutely nothing to do with it. So you look at those, how do you reconcile those two those two thoughts, and, and you say, well, sometimes suffering is, is a punishment for sin, 
and sometimes it's not. And when is it a punishment for sin? And when is it not a punishment for sin? And when it's not a punishment for sin, then what is it? And anyone who thinks they can reconcile all of this confusion through their own efforts, Luke, I think they're out of their mind. Yeah, and the, like I said, outside the mystical body, the, believing that as a heavenly reality, it, it's hard to rectify a lot of this stuff. I mean, how do you rectify being a Protestant? And here Paul says, I make up for lacking in the sufferings of Christ in my own flesh for his body, which is the church. You know, you could try to rationalize that away, but, you, you know, you, you take that at face value and you have to understand that there's no way you can you know, rectify this verse unless the mystical body of Christ is not a metaphor but a heavenly reality. Well, and, and it also shows the other reality that I was just espousing is that if, sin, if, if suffering is not always a punishment for sin, well, then it means that in some mysterious way, suffering has to have some kind of a positive redemptive value uh, and if you accept that reality and you accept the reality of what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2 I don't know how you can not be a Catholic well and here a little bad leaven you know spoils the whole lump but charity inside the body you know then would do the opposite it would assist the whole body. So if you're suffering for Christ in charity, then you're assisting the body. So this Amen. is where we, you know, this is where we could go to have a foundation for the understanding of purgatory. Yeah, but absolutely. You know, that's, that's probably for another day. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let, that's let's a whole other on. show. Yep. Yep. So we're at Matthew 9, 9 through 13, and this is where Jesus calls Matthew. So, and when Jesus passed on from thence, he saw a man sitting in the custom house named Matthew, and he saith to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass as he was sitting at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees, seeing it, said to his disciples, Why doth your master eat with publicans and sinners? But Jesus, hearing it, said, They that are in health need not a physician, but they that are ill go then and learn what this meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the just but the sinner. So, the tax collector was looked at among the Jewish community as, as a social outcast because he is working for the Roman government who, who was enslaving the Jews to, to the tax. You know, we got a good example of that today. Yeah. But they had, they had no representation. <clears throat> Many were also viewed as sinners because they made their money through a margin of the profit of the collection, often going beyond a fair amount into extortion of a higher fee. And for this, they were even considered as unclean. The, the Jerome commentary tells us that there were specific trades that were seen as unclean, including a donkey driver, a camel driver, 
a sailor, a caster, herdsmen, shopkeepers, physicians, our bloodletters, butchers. So in a spiritual sense, our, who Jesus is calling to the banquet? Uh, first, Jesus tells a Jew in authority, let the dead bury the dead, expressing he must separate from the pharisaic authority. Then he calls the common and unclean to sit at a table with him. For those who did not listen to, to our last presentation, the Pharisees could not participate in their, in their ritual duties, readings, unless they first buried their dead. This was uh, a common understanding at, at the time of Christ. So they could not even uh, perform their office. So when Jesus is saying, let the dead bury the dead, to somebody in the office, the Pharisaic office, he's, he's telling them, in order to follow me, you're going to have to separate from the Mosaic law. So mm-hmm. Jesus said that he will have mercy, not sacrifice. This is one of those proof text verses for Protestantism against Catholics. They think that this supports their belief that the Mass is somehow satanic. And when Jesus is saying this, he is conversing with Jews who offered sacrifices for sins, sacrifices for thanksgiving, which we get the word Eucharist from, sacrifice at covenant memorials. So it has nothing to do with Jesus as our true Passover sacrifice and the Holy Mass as the true thanksgiving, Eucharistasis, memorial of the cross before the Father. Uh, in the body of Christ, Christ is the head of the body, Christ through his body who offers. So we are not talking about a sacrifice to Jesus in this passage, but mercy and forgiveness. Also, it is Jesus who offers himself through his body and the Holy Mass to the Father as the true Passover. We do not offer Jesus to Jesus, and, and it is impossible to sacrifice Christ over again. There, there are two main parts to a Jewish sacrifice the slaying of the victim, and the offering of the fruit of the sacrifice uh, to God, which would be the Father. And Jesus willingly went to the cross, and before that, established the offering up of the fruit in the form of bread and wine, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, and of course, like Scripture leads us, when we hear words from Jesus and the apostles referring to Old Testament quotes, we should go back to those quotes and read the entire context in order to place our minds in the minds of the author, uh, the supreme author being Christ, of course. So the words uh, about mercy instead of sacrifice uh, we find in uh, Hosea 6. So let's read it. I'm going to get a sip of water here. In their affliction, they will rise early to me. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he hath taken us, and he will heal us. He will strike, and he will cure us. He will revive us after two days. On the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. We shall know, and we shall follow on, that we may know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning light, and he will come to us as the as the early and later rain to the earth. What shall I do thee, O Ephraim? What shall I do thee, O Judah? Your mercy is a morning cloud, and as a dew that goeth away in the morning. For this reason I have hewed them by prophets. I have slain them 
by the words of my mouth, and thy judgment shall go forth as light. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than holocaust. They, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Galad is a city of workers of idols supplanted with blood. And like the jaws of the highway robbers, they conspire with the priests to murder in the way those that pass out Sitchim, for they have wrought wickedness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel, the fornications of Ephraim there. Israel is defiled. And thou also, O Judah, set thee of harvest, when I shall bring back the captivity of my people. The Pharisees knew these verses and knew where Jesus was going when he read them. Talk about cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yeah. And they, they understood very well what he was saying. What he, what he was saying was, um, stop trying to pile up sacrifices in the temple uh, to compensate for your sinful behavior. Change the sinful behavior. That's what he's. What, what he. It wasn't a. It wasn't a sacrifice problem. It was a heart problem. And you even look at all that imagery. He will revive us after two days. On the third day, he will raise us up. Yeah. You know the 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 church is the body of Christ. Christ was raised on the third day, and uh, the the spiritual imagery when we just absorb it in our souls, we can't put it to words. But our souls feel it if we're open to it, and and just you know, uh, letting God just you know uh, bring these things into our hearts and, and put things together. I mean, it's it's a love story between the uh, the 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 perfect groom and the imperfect bride, and all of this you know uh, you know speaks to the soul, and does so a thousand times greater if you live the religion of the new covenant. Yes, yeah, amazing. So we'll go on to Matthew nine fourteen and fifteen. Uh, Jesus's question about fasting here. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, "Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? Thy disciples do not fast." And Jesus said to them, "Can the children of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them?" But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast. This is so, so powerful and, and so amazing for those who understand that the Bible is a love story between a perfect groom and an imperfect bride. Matthew understands fasting as a type of mourning, so why would you mourn over a wedding? Jeremiah writes about a future wedding between man and God as, as a joyful event. And I will bring back the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Jerusalem. And I will build them as from the beginning. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will forgive all their iniquities, thereby they have sinned against me and despised me. And it shall be to me a name and a joy and a praise and a gladness before all the nations of the earth that shall hear of all the good things which I will do to them, and they shall fear and be troubled for all the good things and for all the peace that I will make for them. Thus saith the Lord, there shall be heard again in this place, which you say is desolate, because there is neither man nor beast in the city of Judah, 
and without Jerusalem, which are desolate with the man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Give ye glory to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever. There's that steadfast love. And of them that shall bring their vows into the house of the Lord, for I will bring back the captivity of the land as it at the first, saith the Lord. So when we look at this, we need to understand it through the understanding of type and heavenly realities. God's relationship with the chosen people is often seen as a marriage. And in this marriage, the groom even prepares the bride through cleansing the bride. Like we discussed last week, unclean is fulfilled and unbaptized. Clean is fulfilled and baptized. So the groom prepares his bride through baptism before union in, in the Eucharist. And uh, in uh, Jesus the Bridegroom by uh, Brant Petrie, uh, we read, If we follow the lead of ancient Jewish tradition and see the bridegroom in the Song of Songs as God and the bride as the people of Jerusalem, then the Song of Songs does not end with the wedding, but with the bride, Israel, waiting for the groom, God, to come. This is exactly how the ancient Jewish Targum on the Song of Songs, interprets the bride's cry for the bridegroom to make haste. At the time of our distress, when we pray before you, God, be like a gazelle, watch over us, and observe our trouble and affliction from the highest heavens, till such time as you are pleased with us, and redeem us, and bring us up the mountains of Jerusalem, where the priests will offer up before you incense and spices. This is in the Targum of Canticles. Brant Petrie comments, notice that in this Jewish tradition, the wedding of God and Israel is consummated through sacrifice and worship. So the Jews were not just waiting for a Messiah and the restoration of the kingdom of David. They were looking for a bridegroom, God of Israel, who through which the marriage would be established through sacrifice, one who would forgive their sins and establish an everlasting covenant. And I don't think that many were focused on this covenant of a remnant of the Jews and a new people of God, a people that the Lord will make who have walked in darkness but have seen a great light, as Matthew told us earlier. So it is the disciples of John the Baptist that were involved here. So the same John who said he is the friend of the, uh, of the groom, John was the best man for the wedding. Another translation uh uh, would be, can the wedding guests mourn while the groom is with them? But what does Jesus say next? Are the wedding guests also the bride which the groom prepares? Uh, think about the patches uh, and wineskins. Uh, you cannot uh, pour new wine in, in, in the old wineskins or the, or the burst. So this is the preparation of the bride. Uh, in Mark uh, 2.20, one in twenty-two. We read. Nobody. Well, you're looking. Well, you're looking that up real quick. We got a caller. I think this is Carrie. Am I right? Oh yes, sir. I'm just just listening in, man. As y'all uh y'all cut up the word for me. <laughs> How you doing, Jerry? Well, I'm gonna leave you unmuted. So anytime you wanna you wanna chime in, you feel like you got something to offer the discussion. Uh, you just just go ahead and chime right in and. Uh, 
Go ahead, continue, Luke. So we can read this in Mark uh, 2.21 or Luke 5.36. And nobody putteth a piece of raw cloth onto an old garment, for it taketh away the fullness thereof from the garment, and there is made a great rent. Neither do they put new wine into old bottles or wineskins. Otherwise the bottles break and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish, but new wine uh, into new bottles. So we're all through this we're developing this purification for the bride, of the bride for, for, for the wedding. And John does an amazing job of this. John is, is, I mean, his whole gospel can be summed up as the wedding feast of the lamb. But in Matthew nine sixteen, go ahead. Uh, it just, isn't it fascinating though, because John uh, from the very start made it very, very clear that his ministry was pointing forward to Jesus. And now, the, uh, the, they're they're questioning Jesus. These were disciples of John. They were questioning Jesus, saying, "Well, John did this. Why are you doing that?" Uh, just it's just fascinating to watch it from forty thousand feet and realize how absolutely difficult it was for them to keep up with Jesus with what Jesus was doing and and understanding it in real time. And, and you got to think of that amazing moment at Pentecost, you know, when the Holy Spirit came to them. You know, they went out and started, you know, just praying God, and, and this everything was flowing from their minds. And even Paul, who was, you know, uh, possibly taken to heaven itself and saw the vision of the Mass, you know, uh, in heaven, you know, it's just all of a sudden they were just infused with this incredible wisdom. Everything just all came together as a seamless tapestry. Right, and Augustine, you know, also picked up on this uh, this marriage, and Augustine writes: every celebration of the Eucharist is a celebration of marriage. The church nuptials are celebrated. The king's son is about to marry a wife, and the king's son is himself the king, and the guests frequenting the marriage are themselves the bride. For all the church is Christ's bride, of which the beginning and first fruits is the flesh of Christ. Because there's a bride joined to the bridegroom in the flesh. Wow. So we got we got here by by doing what the Jews did when they heard a few verses of a psalm. They went through the whole psalm, just like when we look at what uh, Christ said on the cross: "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" You, right. you go down through that same thought, psalm. And it talks about Him declaring His name in a great church. And he's talking about a, a, a people not yet born, you know, and uh, in the psalm. So he's declaring his name in this great church, which is the church of his bride. And from the cross, you know, the, the, uh, we, we see that the Jews did not see the consummation uh, in, you know, this, this festival, heavenly festival, but in a sacrifice, Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and and he begins it by, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> it just, I mean, it's almost like the way the psalm ends is so different from the way that it begins, and and what a microcosm that is of of Jesus' mission that's in reverse, that it ends different than the way that it begins. 
Boy, then add the 18 benedictions we talked about to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we're at Matthew 9, 18 through 26, I believe. Yep. So the healing touch of Jesus. So he was speaking these things unto them. Behold, a certain ruler came up and adored him, saying, Lord, my daughter is even now dead, but come lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus, rising up, followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who was troubled with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I shall touch only his garment, I shall be healed. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Be of good heart, daughter. Thy faith hath made thee whole, and the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus was come into the house of the ruler and saw the minstrels and the multitude making a rout, he said, Give place, for the girl is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. And when the multitude was put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose, and the fame hereof went abroad into all the country. So there's a fuller version of this in Mark 5, 21 to 43. In many of these miracles, Matthew is not focused on detail, but showing proof for Jesus as being the Son of Man. So it appears that Jesus, on the way to visit the ruler's daughter, was approached by the woman who had an issue of blood, which is most likely a continuous hemorrhage or, or perpetual menstruant. Uh, in Jewish law, she would be considered permanently unclean and would be another outcast from society like the leopard in the slave. So the Jerome commentary writes concerning the woman touching the hem of Jesus' garment. The fringe or hem of the garment, this was part of the prayer shawl worn by the devout Jew. We see it in Numbers 1538 uh, through 41, Deuteronomy 2212. The woman's grasping it is a gesture of request known from 1 Samuel 15.27, Zechariah 8.23. So if Matthew felt that it was important to mention this hymn, then let's read the, these Old Testament verses uh, that uh, you know he, uh, he must, must have been referring to if he's purposely mentioning a hymn. So in 1 Samuel 15.27, let's start at 15.22. And Samuel said that the Lord desire holocausts and victims, and not rather that the voice of the Lord should be obeyed. Uh, For obedience is better than sacrifices, and to hearken rather than to offer the fat or rams. Because it is like the sin of witchcraft to rebel, crime of idolatry to refuse to obey. For as much, therefore, as thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned because I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words fearing the people and obeying their voice. But now bear, I beseech thee my sin and return with me that I may adore the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with thee because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned about to go away, but he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and rent it. 
And Samuel said to him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to thy neighbor, who is better than thee. Again, you see here a call to obedience, not sacrifice, as Matthew wrote. But in addition, you see an image of the disobedience of Israel and what, according to Jeremiah, the renting of the garment meant. Yeah, so so clear what you're seeing here, Luke, is a foreshadowing of exactly what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Your power will be taken from you and given to a people who will bear its fruit. And we're seeing this foreshadowed in in what exactly is happening here uh, to Saul. Exactly. Uh, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to thy neighbor, who is better than thee. Eusebius recorded that this woman who, who rent Jesus' garment was a Gentile from Caesarea Philippi. So why did the apostles place in the gospel, or why were they compelled to do so? The apostles, in, in being guided by the Holy Spirit in many instances, may not have a perfect understanding of how these things would be perceived in people's hearts. So the imagery, again, shows us how Jesus, who is king in the line of David, will take a Gentile bride. So the Gentiles' faith has made them whole. Yeah, and I'm not even sure that um, that the that the Bible writers even fully understood the things that they were that they were putting down. They were being led exactly. and inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't think they understood. Even the writers themselves understood the magnetism. Uh, the the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The significance of what it was that they were writing. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat because it is just so phenomenal, and mm-hmm. uh, and when 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 you just look at these directions they're taking us, and uh, you you know, uh, Augustine was talking about uh, the uh, the uh, the new being revealed through the old, you know. And uh, and uh, all the mystagogy and, and the mystery, and it's just you can study this your entire life and barely scratch the surface. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> so we'll go on to Matthew nine twenty three to twenty six. And when Jesus was coming to the house of the ruler and saw the minstrels and the multitude making a rout, he said, "Give place, for the girl is not dead, but sleepeth." And they laughed him to scorn. And when the multitude was put forth, he went in and 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 the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all the country. Uh, Flute players at the time were hired to to accompany those who who mourned. Matthew showing that the Son of Man has power over over life and death here. Uh, Go on to Matthew 9.27, unless you want to add something to that. No, No, please continue. So, and this is where Jesus heals the blind man. And as Jesus passed from thence, uh, there followed him two blind men crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, O son of David. And when he was come to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith to them, Do you believe that I can do this unto you? They said to him, Yea, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus strictly charged them, saying, See that no man know this, 
but they going out spread his fame abroad in all that country. So here Matthew emphasizes that Jesus who healed the blind man is the son of David, showing the kingly genetic line. Jews believe that illness and disabilities were caused by sin, so in healing those who are ill or have disabilities, Jesus is also assuring them that their sins are forgiven. Right, and this is exactly what we were talking about a, a few minutes ago. And, and just to just to expand on that a little bit, Catholics believe that there are a multitude of reasons why God will allow suffering into our lives. He, he may allow suffering into our life to push us off of the right path onto the right uh, wrong path onto the right path. Uh, he may allow suffering into our lives as a punishment for past sins. Uh, he may uh, allow um, suffering into our lives as an atonement for sins that have already been forgiven, and he may allow suffering into our lives in order to manifest his glory or in order to that sacrifice as an offering for someone else's conversion or uh, atonement. So the, the the Jews looked at it as a black and white equation. To them, it was a black and white equation. Oh, if you had suffering in your life, you it was because of your sin. And nowhere do we see that clearer than in Job. We see that clearer in, in Job. Look at his detractors. They automatically assumed, but Job, you, all these things are happening to you because you must have done something wrong, and it wasn't the case. So it's it, it's interesting how the Pharisees and the leaders of the day, just everything was black and white to them, and they didn't understand that there are many reasons why God uh, causes things to happen or allows things to happen. He may have even established AIDS. Who knows? But, you know, can I, God says, can, God says can my I, ways are not your ways. Yeah. So, you know, we can only speculate. Go ahead, Terry. Can I? So... I agree with you, John, but let us remember that all suffering entered the world because of sin. Before Adam and Eve fell, there was no suffering in the Garden of Eden. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you 100% as as individuals, you know, we we are, you know, sometimes called to embrace our our suffering and that will make us uh, holier, give us more grace. But let, let, let's not forget that uh, sin entered the world. I mean, uh, uh, suffering entered the world because of sin. I wasn't Definitely. disputing that at, at, at all. I, I, that's not even, I, I wouldn't dispute that a bit. But the point that I was making is that my suffering can either be to atone for my sin or my suffering could be a positive offering in order to help you atone for your sin. For instance, I can offer up my suffering for souls that are in purgatory, for somebody who died 200 years ago. So uh, eventually drawn all the way back, you draw the line all the way back. Yes, sin is the cause of suffering. uh, And and yet um, it, it it just shows the beauty and the magnificence of God that he can take what the devil means for harm, he can take mm. suffering and use it to his own advantage, turn it completely on his ear and use it in order to accomplish 
his mission. And if, if if anybody needs any proof of that, look at the crucifixion. Yeah, man, that's my favorite thing. God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. Amen. Yeah, you can put two and two together. You know, Scripture says charity covers a, a, a multitude of sins. Well, what's charity? Well, charity is being Christ to man. What did Christ do? He suffered for man. So even even in our our suffering, we could do it through charity and be Christ to man by applying that to the cross. Yep, amazing. Yep. So we're on Matthew nine thirty two. Jesus heals a, a mute man. So. And when they were gone out, behold, they brought him a dumb man possessed with the devil. And after the devil was cast out, the dumb man spoke. And the multitudes wondered, saying, Never was the like seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, By the prince of devils, he cast out the devils. So Catholics should see these similar responses when it comes to Eucharistic miracles and apparitions of Mary. Uh in cognitive dissonance, people often lash out against this. You know, the blind see, the mute speak. Uh, through true faith, the spiritually blind begin to see the truth, and the previously mute evangelize. And as this happens, uh, happens the Pharisees plot. <laughs> and we see this in, in, in modern-day, uh, you know, uh, understandings, you know, against Catholicism. Yeah, I mean, we certainly do, and, and um, the, you know, when you talk about the cognitive dissonance and the lashing out, uh, they lash out in ways that don't even <clears throat> don't even make any sense because they don't even confront the actual argument. They, in other words, they they create the straw man. Like for instance, you brought up Mary, perfect example. The only person that makes Mary into a goddess is an anti-Catholic. <laughs> so it's a, <laughs> yep. It, they're erecting a straw man, and, and it's because they can't defend their version of Mary. They can't defend the anti-Catholic Mary. So what they do is they create a false Catholic Mary and try and make the the uh, debate as a false dilemma between two false Marys. And, and then you look at the two false Marys and have to choose, well, which one is the less false? And, and that's how they expect you to, to to win over to their side. But the, the fact of the matter is that you look at the Mary of the Bible, and it's perfectly con- consistent. God sent messengers. God sent angels uh, to, to transmit his word. And, and we we look in, in the book of Revelation, and the angels and the saints are active in the mission of God. So the idea that that the queen of heaven could not come as a messenger from God is, is absurd. It's a, it's absolutely absurd. There's not many verses, but there's key verses. And, and the way I see this sometimes is I see it as God, you know, purposely doing that so that his church, the people in his church can defend his mother. You know, it's, it's, it's like, we're defending holiness. <laughs> we're, we're trying to show so, something that, that is holy and deep and spiritual. 
yeah. and the other side is saying, no, it's not. <laughs> you know? and, well, I, I think you know, there's a deeper thing at work, Luke. I really do. I think when you yeah. when you start with Genesis 3.15, uh, which you know shows Mary at enmity with the devil, you look at First uh, Kings chapter 2, which shows her as the queen, Psalm 45, which shows her as the queen, uh, and then you look at you know, you look at Luke 13, you look at John 19, you look at Revelation 12, and they all say that the true believers are children of the woman. And I, I think this this entire debate is a way of God showing who are the true believers, because the true believers will have Mary as their mother. And this is what this is what Matthew says, or I mean, what John says that Jesus said from the cross. Jesus said to the disciple. An interesting use of language. It doesn't even say Jesus said to John. It says Jesus said to his disciple, behold your mother. And the disciple. You know, a lot of that has to do with their their uh, their ignorance of, of of their own history. I mean if you look at the writings of uh, the Protestant fathers, um, almost all of them believed that Mary was the mother of God. Mary was the queen of heaven. Uh, it, it, it was just in the last few hundred years that Protestants started uh, bashing on, on Mary, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. It's that entropy. You go from organization to disorganization. Like uh, Calvin and Knox and Luther would not even recognize modern Protestantism as Christianity. It's sad, but it, 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 it's, it's gotten that bad. It's the image of, of not being um, grafted to the vine and, and just going further and further out on the limb. You know, the mustard seed grows mm-hmm. into the great oak tree, and, and they're just going further and further and further out onto the limb until, you know, it just, like like you said, I mean, you, you've got, You've got Protestants today that deny the incarnation. <laughs> How can you call yourself a Christian and deny the incarnation, deny that Jesus was born in that stable in Bethlehem? That's the foundation of the entire Christian faith. Um, it, it's just, it's incredible. Yeah, speaking of that, I was just on debating on a, on a site called Rightly Dividing the Word of God. And this comes from a false uh, uh, English interpretation from the King James Version. It's the only one that says this about dividing the word of truth. Right. And they built up this whole cultic philosophy around this, talking about Paul being the, 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 you know, the one who formed the whole church. And so they only focus on Paul and Jesus. And I was talking to somebody on this page and they wouldn't even recognize Jesus as as being God who went to the cross. So they've separated through this demonic solus scriptura so far that they think they're Christians when they're not even Christians anymore. It's sad. It's really sad. But this yeah. is, I mean, Satan's intelligence is preternatural. People think they, they could simply, you know, go into a battle of wits with this guy. No, he makes Freud look like a kindergartner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Hey, well, he's made me look like a fool on more than one occasion, so I can, I can speak from that from experience. When I'm arguing with a, a Protestant, I believe, okay, we both we both believe this scripture has authority, and you believe that it's the sole authority. So let's look at John chapter 56, uh, John chapter 6, verse 53. And, oh, man, that always starts an argument. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we're got. Are we doing two hours? Yeah, we're 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 good for two hours. Okay, let's go on to now, Luke. Luke, you there? Hello. Hey, Luke. Luke, we're not hearing you. I'm still seeing you on the switchboard, but we're not hearing you. You went silent. Okay, so until um, Luke comes back, let me read what he was going to read next. He was going to go into Matthew 9, 35, 38, and uh, Luke just jumped back in when, whenever you can. Right now... You're on the switchboard, but you're not transmitting. We're not hearing you. So Matthew 9, 35 to 38 says, The sheep and the harvest. And Jesus went about all the cities and towns, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. And seeing the multitudes, he had compassion on them because they were distressed and lying like sheep that have no shepherd. Then he says to the disciples, the harvest is indeed great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore for the Lord of the harvest that he send forth laborers into the harvest. So Jesus, the true Moses, who established the true exodus of baptism, who is to establish the true Passover, is expressing the coming of the kingdom, a sacramental kingdom, as he shows compassion as the Son of Man, healing every infirmity. Jesus expresses a need for spiritual shepherds because sheep without shepherds are left to the wolves. Luke, are you there? Are you there? Can you hear me, Luke? All right, he called back in, but I still can't hear him. I'm not sure exactly what's happened. Um... Luke, why don't you try calling in with your phone, transmitting, calling with your phone, or bring it on that way. Uh, the number number is 515-602-9655. Again, 515-602-9655. Anybody else wants to call in and comment? Uh, we're waiting for Luke to call in. Um, so we're waiting for Luke to call back in. Terry, what do you think about that last? Uh, uh, I think we got him. <laughs> there he is. We got technical <laughs> difficulties. Uh, yeah, I don't know what's going on, but your microphone just stopped transmitting. Um, okay, go ahead uh, with the sheep and the harvest. I just read the passage. Okay, let me turn this down a little bit because I'm getting serious feedback. I just, I just muted your microphone. You should be okay now. Okay, how about now? We're good now. Okay, <laughs> I'll have to figure that problem out later. 
So uh, uh, you, you just know what? It's probably just uh, it's probably just reinstalling the microphone. It's probably just a software glitch. Uninstall the microphone probably. and reinstall it. Probably. Well, I'll deal with it later. So you just read about the harvest. Uh, did you read yep. through thirty-eight? I read from uh, read nine thirty-five to thirty-eight. Yes. Okay. So Jesus, the true Moses, who established the true Exodus of baptism, who is to establish the true Passover, is expressing the coming of the kingdom, uh, a sacramental kingdom, as he shows compassion as the Son of Man. And he's healing every infirmity. Uh, Jesus expresses a need for spiritual shepherds because sheep without shepherds, uh, you know, are left to the wolves. So, uh, and uh, do you want to add something to this or do you, do you want to go on? No, uh, please continue. Okay, we're at Matthew 10, 1 through 4. So it looks like this is uh, when the 12 apostles are called. So in having called his 12 disciples together, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of diseases and all manner of infirmities. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the Republican, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, uh, Simon the uh, Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who, is also, who also betrayed him. So Jesus is establishing his first missionaries of his church. Uh, the Son of God and the Son of Man and Messiah King is now showing how he can not only heal but give others the power to heal. Not only to cast out demons, but give others the power to cast out demons. Uh, but when we look at infirmity from, from the Jewish perspective of sin, again, even here is an allegorical nature. He is giving man the power to forgive sins. So Matthew also emphasized Peter as being first, the first in line to shepherd the sheep of God. In Isaiah 63:11 and Jeremiah 23:2, we see that shepherds are rulers. So Jesus is establishing rulers over his people, Peter being first. The number 12 is generally referred to as having a relationship to 12 tribes and a symbolic restoration of Israel. But if we go deeper into the spiritual implications, uh, the meeting tent shows a microcosm of the world. Now, the meeting tent is entered through the bronze lava, and we look at the bronze lava of baptism. According to Titus 3.5, uh, Paul is, is, is creating this description, is creating this imagery saying that we are saved by the lava and through grace. And uh, regeneration is describing baptism in the context of this lava. And the holies is the flesh of Christ, the church on earth, where the bread of the presence has become the Eucharist, and the menorah is the cross, saving through all ages of time. The incense is the prayers of saints rising to the throne of God, as we see in Revelation. So the Holy of Holies represents the eternal state of heaven. At a very holy mass, the veil between the holies and the holies, holy of holies is, is rent, and we are present close to heaven through Passover. So outside of the meeting tent is the world represented by the 12 tribes surrounding the meeting tent, and the graces of God through the Shekinah or the Holy Spirit emanate into the world through the true meeting tent uh, coming forth from the meeting tent. 
from the Eucharist, from the, uh, the church, from the body of Christ. And Protestant uses the word gospel in a very limited way. The apostolic church saw the gospel to include all of the prophecies fulfilled, including the reestablished uh, kingdom of David in the church. And we see this through the spiritual reality of the image of the meeting text. And, and not only not only the uh, kingdom of David being established in the church, but in a larger setting being established in heaven. Because yes. what yes. we see in heaven in the book of Revelation, we see the fulfilled kingdom of David. And and that's why they have so they missed that completely. And that's why they have so much idea uh, trouble with, with this idea, for example, of Mary being the queen. Well, if you understand the kingdom of David and you understand that the kingdom of God is the fulfillment of the kingdom of David, there has to be a queen. <laughs> there has to be a queen and there has to be a chief steward. And uh, that's why this, this, this idea of viewing the Old Testament as a blueprint is just, it's just so essential. Understand... Who was it? Was it was it Augustine that said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed? It's just so. Oh, you remember that better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Matthew ten five through fifteen is where we're at in this. So these twelve, these twelve Jesus sent commanding them, saying, Go ye not into the way of the Gentiles, and into the city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go ye rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And going, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out devils. Freely have you received, freely give. Do not possess gold or silver, nor money in your purses, nor script for your journey, nor two coats, nor shoes, nor a staff, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And when you come into the house, salute it, saying, Peace be to this house. And if that house be worthy, your peace shall come upon it. But if it be not worthy, your peace shall return to you. And whoever shall uh, not receive you, nor hear your words going forth out of that house or city. Shake off the dust from your feet. And then I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So it is understood that a remnant of the Jews will be saved. And Paul understood this church to be composed of both Gentiles and Jews. And in order to clarify this prophecy, I'm going to repeat some things. Uh, that we built up in, in previous presentations. So bear with me uh, as we rebuild this image so we can see the big picture being developed here. So the word covenant comes from a Semitic word, berit, which means to cut a covenant or a sharing of blood. Jesus says, this is my blood in the new covenant. Do this. The apostles understood this, this covenant relationship and picked up on that right away. So a covenant establishment of God in a covenant oath and covenant curse. So God expressing this when through scripture he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's a marriage between God and man. You know, we're seeing this build up in the image of the bride and the bridegroom. So the prophet told about a time when the Gentiles will enter a covenant with God, 
and even the red heifer, which is a type for baptism, shows a cleansing by a sacrifice, a type for Christ, for both Jews and Gentiles who choose to follow the covenant of the one God among the Israelites. So the, the line of David in, in a precursor is brought together by a marriage between a Jew, Boaz, and a Gentile, Ruth, who said, your God will be my God. So Matthew shows us that Jesus began his ministry in the Galilee, which was half Jew and half Gentiles, and even placed in Matthew's references to prophecy fulfilled in Christ, is the coming of the Gentile nation, which will know God. And even in Jesus' words from the cross, he was showing his prophecy being fulfilled in, in the marriage bed of the cross, as we read in, the, in, in, in Psalms you know, 22. Mm-hmm. So, and in Hosea, uh, yeah, Paul, or, uh, some, of, some of the translations of that are Osea, O-S-E-A. We read, and I will spouse thee to me forever, and I will spouse with me in justice and judgment and in mercy and in commensurations. And it goes on toward the bottom, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy on her that was without mercy. And I will say to that which was not my people, thou art my people. They shall say, thou art my God. So through Malachi, we see uh, that this will be a Gentile people that will offer sacrifice worthy of God. And, of course, the only thing worthy of God is, is his own son. And I hate to use that word thing, but I don't know what else to use for it. <laughs> so Malachi 1.11 uh, uh, reads, For from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and every place there is sacrifice. There is offered to my name name a clean oblation, for my name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord. So it is Paul who confirms this understanding as we read in Romans, starting at about 9.24. He writes, Even us whom also he hath called, not only the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, as in Osi, he saith, I will call that which was not my people, my people, and her that was not beloved, beloved, and her that was, had not obtained mercy, one that hath obtained mercy. And it shall be in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, if the number of the children of Israel be of the sand, sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he shall finish his word and cut it short in justice, before a short word shall the Lord make upon the earth. And Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had, we had been made as Sodom, and we had been made been like unto Gomorrah. So, of course, Paul uh, makes this blatant in the Galatians the three twenty six. And in Romans 9, 8, uh, he says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither uh, uh, Jew or Gentile, uh, Jew or Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And... Uh, if we consider Romans, Romans 9, first, uh, before we read it, Isaac was a miraculous birth. Baptism into the promise of Abraham fulfilled is a miraculous birth. Matthew showed us how we become sons of God by following Jesus into baptism. 
if not for God's steadfast love to Abraham and his covenant with Abraham, the Israelites who took on the oath and the curse, who failed in the oath, would have been destroyed by the cursed, and they would have gone in the way of Sodom and Gomorrah through God's wrath. So God fulfilled his promise to Abraham in this steadfast love through a remnant of Israel and the creation of a new people of God through a Gentile nation. And Paul basically, you know, opens this this whole understanding up to us when he says, not as the word, though the word of God is miscarried, for all are not Israelites that are of Israel, neither are all they that are of the seed of Abraham children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. That is to say, not they that the children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that the children of the promise are accounted as a seed. And of course, Matthew wrote in chapter 3 the words of God, uh, uh, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I tell you that God is able to, uh, able, uh, God is able of these stones to raise up the children of Abraham. And of course, Peter said, baptism now saves you. So we see part of this fulfillment of the prophecy when, when we see that Gentiles who were living the new covenant, including the Holy Mass, were falling back into paganism. Therefore, Paul responds, wherefore, my dearly beloved, fly from the service of idols. As I, uh, I, I speak as to wise men, judge yourselves what I say. The chalice, the benediction in which we bless, is it not communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not partaking of the body of the Lord? For we, being many, are of one bread, one body, all that partake of the one bread. Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, are not they that eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? What then do I say that what has offered in sacrifice to idols is anything, or that the idol is anything? But the things with the heathen sacrifice, they sacrifice to the devils and not to God. I would not that you should be made partakers of the devils. You cannot drink the chalice of the Lord and the chalice of devils. You cannot be partakers of the table of the Lord and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? So it's interesting where Paul talks about this, uh, uh, the Jews having this, you know, this physical sacrifice as opposed to our spiritual reality also yeah and the interesting you brought up you brought up the imagery from the old testament of of a of a a a spiritual sodom and that is exactly what jerusalem is called in the book of revelation uh in uh, chapter 11 verse 8 it says the lord um was crucified in the great city, which is now a spiritual Sodom or Egypt. Uh, and and the image is clear. Sodom is, of course, the city that God rained fire down upon, destroyed because of its sin, as Jerusalem is about to be destroyed because of its sin. And Egypt is the city of bondage in which we fled from. And now Jerusalem echoed by the words of Jesus in Matthew, in Luke, in Mark, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem flee to the mountains. So this imagery of Sodom and of Egypt comes into play because, as you said, they couldn't understand 
this Israel of stone versus the Israel of the heart, and and that uh, and this is what John was saying very clearly. Do not presume to say you are children of Israel, uh, the children of Abraham, for God can raise up from these stones children to, uh, to Abraham. Long and the, the long and short of it, Luke, is they thought they were being saved because of who they were, not what they were, not what they had become through the power of God. And God did so through baptism. And, and right. that's why this, this born-again movement is so and, diabolical. And the Eucharist. Because, baptism and yeah. the Eucharist. Yes, yes. And if you separate from baptism, you separate from redemption. You separate from the new covenant. So it's, 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 it's so damaging. The born-again movement is so diabolical. Anybody yeah. who thinks that baptism is not necessary. Mm-hmm. Is is in a bad state. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. No, I hear you. I'm I'm in agreement with you 100. <laughs> percent Okay. <laughs> so, in the beginning of the ministry, a, a prophecy was being fulfilled. Jesus and the apostles would, would first focus on the Jewish nation, and they would refuse the Messiah, and then they would go to the Gentiles. And Jesus is the stone rejected that has become the cornerstone of the new people of God. But first, there is the rejection, which we see in the prophecy. If we look at Psalms 118, we read, And I will give glory to thee, because thou hast heard me, and art, be, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is wonderful in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice. And we see Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew 21 when he said to the Pharisees who were rejecting him, Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. By the Lord, this has been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. And shall be given to a nation, yielding the fruits thereof. And whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But one whosoever it shall fall, it shall grind him to powder. And of course, Peter tells us that this people will be the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham as, as the chosen people. Right. He this also under- fulfills what you were talking about earlier uh, with, with reference to Saul about the kingdom will be taken from you and given to an, a, another that will yield his, his fruits. Here we're seeing the fulfillment of that right here in Matthew 21. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, all the apostles you know, understood this because, you know, they're infused with this wisdom. So Peter picks up on it and says, Under whom coming as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen and made honorable by God. Be you also a living stones built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, it is said in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that shall believe in him shall not be confounded. To you, therefore, that believe is honor, but to them that believe not the stone which the builders rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of scandal to them who stumble at the word, neither do believe whereunto they are set. 
but you are a chosen generation, a kingly priesthood, a holy nation, a purchased people that you may declare as virtues who have called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. <laughs> yeah. So hey, Luke, we see I want from you Matthew. Table, I just want you to table this right now and file it away because this is going to come back later uh this this concept of jesus being the living stone because there are protestants that use this to argue against matthew 16 of peter being the rock uh so just <laughs> put it on the shelf because we're going to need to pull this off the shelf later please continue yep yep so uh at the end of jesus discourse and and preparing uh the apostles he says in matthew 10:14. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, going forth out of that house, our city, shake off the dust from your feet. Amen, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And yes, as we already shown, you know, Jerusalem is, is brought into this image too. So Jesus is showing us that those who reject him will be judged for that rejection and we should understand that this is a process that will be present until the end of time. If the truth is revealed to one's soul through grace and you reject that truth, you fall from grace. You cannot enter heaven outside of a state of grace. So we have discussed the laws written on our hearts, and, and, and we understand that covenant comes with covenant oaths and curses. Uh, today the curse is established through choosing to let concupiscence rule your life. And the curse is eternity in hell. Yeah. And I've always been struck by the image here where Jesus says, put your blessing on the house, but if they reject you, your blessing will return to you. I've always, or your peace will return to you. I've always been struck by that Im uh, image. Could you go a little deeper on that? No. <laughs> okay. That was quick enough. That was quick enough. Okay, Matthew ten sixteen. <laughs> I was looking at that and I kind of just passed by it because I didn't have anything either. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, you know, that's something that I'm going to read up on and be ready. I want to revisit that one point. When we do the next show, because I've always been fascinated that image of extend your peace, and if they don't accept you, your peace will return to you. That's always been an image that's fascinating to me, but I don't want to make it a speed bump to derail tonight, so please continue. Yeah, I, I don't understand. I was thinking, so, so your peace left you? <laughs> you didn't have it while you're still there? <laughs> right. So... Yeah, I, I'm sure we're we're lost in translation there. Yeah, we're <laughs> missing have, something have to for sure. Back to like the original Greek or something so to really get a, a grasp right. on it. So I believe we're at Matthew 10:16. So, <clears throat> behold, I send you a sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and simple as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up in councils. And they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and before kings for my sake, 
for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they shall deliver you up, take no thought how or what to speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what to speak. For it is not you that speak, but the spirit of your father that speaketh in you. The brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father to the son. And the children shall rise up against their parents, and shall put them to death. And you shall be hated by all men uh, for my name's sake. But he that shall preserve unto the end shall be saved. And when they shall persecute you in this city, flee into another Amen. I say to you, you shall not finish all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. The stop disciples right there. are not about the master. Stop. Go ahead. I need you to stop right there because that's a very, a very important and shocking claim here. The people who who like to take these all of these verses and turn them into end of the, of the world prophecies. Clearly, what Jesus is saying here is something that will happen in their lifetime. And when they shall persecute you in this city, flee to another. Amen. I say to you, you will not finish the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And we're going to see this in Matthew chapter 24, where you've got to parse the language very, very clearly. Because Jesus is talking about short-term prophecy and long-term prophecy. This is the beginning of the prophecies against Jerusalem. This is not Jesus. This is not the second coming. This is not seeing Jesus come the second time. This is seeing Jesus come in the form of the judge against the city of Jerusalem. That's what's being foreshadowed here. And we'll see that very clearly in Matthew 23 and 24 when when we get to it. So, uh, sorry, but I just thought that was a very important point to make. Please continue. Yeah, and Paul even alludes to it a little bit when he talks about uh, uh, the Old Covenant waxing old and soon to end. Right. So, uh, And Paul was writing, I guess, uh, I forgot which book, but it had to have been uh, probably around 68 A.D., Couple of years before the uh, the Jerusalem event, and uh, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, in Revelations uh, when they fled Jerusalem. Uh, Scott Hahn uh, um, uh, saw that saw that, and he described that as you know the 144,000 in, in the imagery of Revelations, and they're in white robes, so they're in the white robes of baptism, so they're Christians. And uh, he uh, gives one theory that the 144,000 were baptized Christians who fled to Pella right before the destruction of Jerusalem. So when uh, so the Book of Revelation, there's a possibility that it was written before 70 A.D. Therefore, when uh, John you know writes, "Get out of her," he's referring to Jerusalem. Yeah. Yes, Han makes that point very, very clearly, and, and two of the things that that Han points out is that um, that John's grasp of the nuances of the Greek language were much more refined in the other writings, in the Gospel and his three letters, that, that just those little sayings, those little nuances of the language were, he had a much better grasp which suggests that the other four letters or the other four works were written later 
and then the other thing is when when you look at the clue that we have right there in chapter 17 it talks about the seven kings as five have fallen if you're looking at 68 80 five have fallen one is uh what is yet to come and when he comes he will be only a short while well if you set the setting in 68 AD and you make the kings as Roman emperors, by that time, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, and Caligula had indeed all fallen. One was Galba, and he reigned only about three months, so indeed a short time. And the one which will follow him will also reign only a short time, and that was Othos. And Othos also reigned only about three three uh, months. It was 1960, uh, 1968. Wow, I, I'm going into the Beatles now. <laughs> 68 AD. I was, I, I was close. I was only off by 19 centuries. 68 AD um, was known as the year of the four emperors. There were actually four emperors that year. So it's really the only year that could fit the wording and with what Scott Hahn says about the linguistic uh, part of it and the part of it that you uh, mentioned, I'm, I'm in complete agreement, not only with Scott Hahn, but with other writers like Michael Barber and, and a lot of other writers who date the writing of the Book of Revelation in 68 AD, just before Paul himself uh, was was executed by by Nero. Yeah, yeah. I, I see how that 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 really flows, you know. And uh, because uh, I mean, I mean, even the letter of uh, you know from Clement, I mean, could have been before seventy AD. You know, if, if, yeah, that's another story. <laughs> we better <Yeah>. move on. <laughs> so, verse twenty-three. So, and when they shall persecute you in the city, flee unto another. Amen, I say to you, you shall not finish all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man can come. We just we just went over that one. So the yeah. disciple is not above the master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the good man of the household Beelzebub, how much more them of his household? So I send you out as sheep among the wolves. Here we should remember the the discipline at Ar- Arcana and how the, the Didache shows us that no one is to receive the Eucharist until they are baptized in the church because our Lord said, do not give us holy new dogs. So Jesus, of course, knows of the, the, the coming persecution and that Christians are going to teach a radical change. Uh, against the Jews, they, they're going to teach that Catholicism is the fulfillment of Judaism how all the types of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ and the church, how Jesus as a spiritual Israel uh, took on the curse held in abeyance they brought on themselves for not keeping the law, how Moses is fulfilled in Christ, Aaron and the the ambassador to the king seen in Isaiah 22 as a father to the king's people, how the Levitical priests are fulfilled in the Catholic priesthood, how the bread of the presence is fulfilled in the Eucharist. Uh, against the pagan authorities, they were up against an authority who was always looking to stamp down uh, insurrection. A change in thinking in, in large groups alone sends red flags up uh, to the authorities. 
So History of the World by Cambridge says that the pagan authorities saw Christians as magicians and cannibals. Magicians, because that is the only way they could explain all the miracles going on, and cannibals due to false understanding of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So an example of, of, of these early things, Irenaeus writing about uh, one of these trials, wrote about Blandita, who, who knew she was dealing with people who did not have the faith to understand. So Irenaeus writes, for when the Greeks having arrested the slaves of Christian catechumens, then used force against them in order to learn from them some secret thing practiced among Christians. These slaves having nothing to say that would meet the wishes of their tormentors, except that they had heard from their masters that the divine communion was the body and blood of Christ, and imagining that it was actually flesh and blood, gave their inquisitors answers to that effect. Then these later, assuming such to be the case with regard to the practices of Christians, gave information regarding it to other, Christ, other Greeks and to compel the martyrs, Sanctus and Blandina, to confess under the influence of torture that the allegation was correct. To these men, Blandina replied very admirably in these words, how should those persons endure such accusations who for the sake of the practice of piety did not avail themselves even of the flesh that was permitted them to eat. So much had to be protected, you know, and and in order to even, you know, for for Christianity to to even progress and, and to build, uh, or else, you know, the whole world would be irate against it. So the church was giving the most sacred mysteries of, of the universe. Therefore, uh, Saint Basil writes. Uh, he writes on the traditions of the church concerning the teachings of the church, whether publicly uh, proclaimed, kiragma, mata kiramagna, mata, or reserved to members of the household of the faith, dogmata. We have received some from written sources, while others have been given to us secretly through apostolic tradition. Both sources have equal force in true religion. No one would deny either source. No one at any rate who is even slightly familiar with the ordinances of the church. If we attack the unwritten customs, claiming them to be of little importance, we would fatally mutilate the gospel, no matter what our intentions, or rather, we would reduce the gospel teachings to bare words. So, also take into consideration that this sending is not just for the apostles and their disciples. It is evangelical until the end of time. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Jesus says, Paul referred to this commission uh, until the end of time when he said to him, be glory in the church through all generations. So you define the true church through faith and practice going back to all generations by Christ. If you're not living in obedience to faith or religion ritual uh, of the new covenant, then you are not living the new covenant. And Jesus said, the brother also shall deliver up the brother to death and the father the son, and the children shall rise up against their parents and shall put them to death, and you shall be hated by all men for my name's sake, but he that shall preserve unto the end shall be saved. But obviously this does not mean preserving until the end of time here but preserving through a world in general 
that would persecute the church and the people in the church. Right. Jesus says that Satan, yeah, Jesus said that Satan will plant weeds in the kingdom of heaven. So obviously there are no weeds in the eternal state. So this preserving is in the church that will even be attacked by wickedness and sin from inside the church due to Satan who has you know that preternatural intelligence wanting to destroy it. And this preternatural intelligence even created paganism to keep people uh, from it. So Catholics who leave the church left because of Satan's influence. They did not preserve in God's church till the end. Peter referred to this when he wrote, Promise and liberty, whereas they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For by whom a man is overcome, of the same also he is a slave. For flying from the pollutions of the world to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they be again entangled in them and overcome. Their latter state has become unto them worse than the former. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of justice than after they have known it to turn back from the holy commandment which is delivered to them, for that of the true proverb has been has happened to them. The dog is returned to his vomit, and the sow that was washed in her wallow to the mire. Yeah, Peter <laughs> Peter had a way with words, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you I wanna... put that in the modern colloquialism, and uh, <laughs> you can make people pretty irate. <laughs> yeah, well, the dog returning to his own vomit. I mean, that's that's okay, Peter. Did you really need to put it that way? I mean, uh, <laughs> but I guess it's 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 a call back to the Old Testament. So it's just very graphic, anyway. But I wanted to go to verse twenty-one that that you emphasize because it says, "He that perseveres to the end, he shall be saved." So, like you said, Matthew is talking about a church that's not going to get along well with uh, the world. Paul is talking about a church that is not going to get along well with the world, and so is Peter. Uh, and that you look at Protestantism. And you look at a church that, I mean, honestly, if you look at most of the history of America, the Christian church in America got along fine with the government in America. Uh, it's only in these last few decades that this this hostility towards Christianity in America, especially towards Catholicism, uh, as, I mean, it's not to say that the immigrants coming there wasn't persecution of the immigrants coming to America in the early in the early years. There were, but this open hostility that you see in the public square towards America, uh, I mean, towards Catholicism, is certainly a new thing in my lifetime, and it's it's because of this 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 notion that. Christianity no longer gets along with the government that we have because the two can't play nice in the same sandbox. It's very, it's very, very clear that the message of Christianity, and when you look at the radical message of secular humanism in the world today with the LGBT and runaway abortion and all these other things, the two worldviews are irreconcilable. And they always have been irreconcilable, but now it's become more obvious. Yeah, I think this really started in America when uh, 
well, it was present before, but you had a justice in the Supreme Court, Hugo Black, who was a who was a Freemason, when he took the Jefferson Papers and instead of the Constitution, used a false exegesis, let's say, on the Jefferson Papers about separation of church and state, which was uh, it was kind of ridiculous. You know, it's right. one of those things where. It's like people taking a, you know, some scripture and falsely read it becomes a tradition, a false understanding, where Jefferson was simply emphasizing that, you know, the state's not going to push one religion on the people. It doesn't say that and, the state can't promote the virtues of of Christianity. And through right, that, and that's, when, uh, that's when they started attacking the Catholic school system and separating the Catholic school system from any type of funding. Right. And LBJ just picked it up and ran with it, and 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 passed this uh, this this law that basically saying that you know people in 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 churches could not advocate, uh, basically limiting their ability to advocate in the in the uh, public square, which is really a, a, an attack on free speech. Um, and it's and like you said, it's all been downhill since then. <laughs> Once you separate from that moral and natural law, you create a slide into blind insanity, and there's no stop sign in insanity. Right. So, uh, so I don't, I don't know how this is going <laughs> to reverse. But <laughs> it's not. Uh, well, let's move on then. <laughs> yep. With Matthew uh, ten twenty six to thirty one. So, therefore, fear them not, for nothing is covered that shall not be revealed nor hid that shall not be known. That which I tell you in the dark, speak ye in the light, and that which you hear in the ear, preach ye upon the housetops. And fear ye not them that kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father? but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, better are you than many sparrows. And we're reading the deranged version, and sometimes right. it becomes a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so one may think that th- this contradicts what I said about the church protecting deep spiritual mysteries. But Basil gives support for, for what I have said when he wrote, uh, have any saints left for us in writing the words to be used in the invocation over the Eucharistic bread and the cup of blessing? As everyone knows, we are not content in the liturgy simply to recite the words recorded by St. Paul or the Gospels, but we add other words both before and after, words of great importance for this mystery. We have received these words from that unwritten teaching. We bless the baptismal water and the oil for chrismation, as well as the candidate approaching the font. By what written authority do we do this, if not from secret mystical tradition? Even beyond blessing the oil, was uh, what written command do we have to anoint with it? Uh, What about baptizing a man with three immersions or other baptismal rites, such as the renunciation of Satan and his angels? (coughs) Are not these uh, things found in unpublished and unwritten teachings, which our fathers guarded in silence, safe from meddling and petty petty curiosity. They have learned their lesson well. Reverence for the mysteries is best encouraged by silence. 
the uninitiated were not even allowed to be present at the mysteries. How could you expect these teachings to be paraded about in public documents? Why did the great Moses not open every part of the meeting tent to everyone? The unclean he placed outside the sacred precincts, while the first court was assigned for the ritual pure. He judged only the Levites worthy to serve God, while sacrifices, burnt offerings, and other priestly functions were reserved to the priests. Only one chosen from all the priests was admitted into the innermost sanctuary, but only on one day each year. Even on this one day, he entered for only a short time so that he would be amazed by the novelty and strangeness of gazing on the Holy of Holies. So he goes on and says, when the apostles and fathers established ordinance for the church, they protected the dignity of the mysteries of silence and secrecy from the beginning, since what is noised abroad in, at, to anyone at random is no mystery at all. We have unwritten traditions so that the knowledge of dogma might not become neglected and scorned through familiarity. Dogma is one thing, kerygma is another. The first is observed in silence, while the other is proclaimed to the world. What he's doing here is is kind of elaborating on what uh, Paul was saying. When Paul started to describe the meeting tent and the mysteries of the meeting tent, which is a salvation through Christ in the church, and he said, of this is not now needful to explain here particularly. There's nowhere else in Scripture he does so because they're following God's rule to give not what is holy to the dogs. Because as they went out and evangelized, uh, when they went into people's homes, there's only so much you could say without completely infuriating the Jews or 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 other Gentiles. So things had also, even though, you know, you had uh, what was proclaimed, you also had things that could not even be explained until they had first had faith to even believe that Jesus was God. Right. And you talk about the priest, once again, uh, only chosen from among the priests was admitted into the innermost sanctuary only one day a year. And once again, <laughs> today today is that day, Yom Kippur. Uh, we're up against it. We're about out of time. Before we go, I just want to say to everyone listening, I request your prayers for our brother Richard Pettis, a member of the Four Persons who has suffered a very serious uh, leg injury, uh, Luke, that uh, is going to require some major surgery. So um, our, our, our prayers for um, for Richard. In fact, if, if you would uh, lead us in uh, three three Hail Marys for uh, for Richard, and let's and let's close it out that way until next week. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen.
would be the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, was in the beginnings, now or shall be, where was that end? Amen. Amen. God be with you, Richard. We're praying for you, and uh, we're, we're pulling for you, and you're going you're gonna to get through this thing okay. And until next week, to continue this, and we'll pick up next week with Matthew 1032. God bless. Have a great yeah. week. You too.